My heart is full this morning. I'm excited to open God's Word and study together. So let's do that. If you would, go ahead and take your Bibles with me and turn to the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 14 is where we'll be today. We're continuing our series this morning, A New Look at the Old Testament. And for the first two messages in this series, we looked at the first book of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. Today, I want to look at the second book of the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, which is appropriately titled Exodus. It's a book about the Israelites exiting the nation of Egypt and escaping the bondage of slavery, returning to the promised land of Canaan. And, you know, when you think about the, the, the formative moments in Israel's history, when you think about those, those really significant, important moments in their history, the Exodus is at the top of the list. Whenever the Old Testament prophets, Moses included, would refer to God, they would always speak of Yahweh, the God who brought you out of the slavery uh, in Egypt, the, the God of the Exodus, essentially. You know, the prophets, as they would point back to God, they, they wouldn't talk about the God who created the universe, including Adam and Eve, although that was certainly true. The prophets wouldn't talk about the God who destroyed the Tower of Babel and created diverse people groups and languages around the world, although that was true too. When the prophets of the Old Testament would remind the Israelites who God was and what God had done for them, inevitably they would return to the Exodus. They would refer to the Exodus, this grand event in their shared history. And the climactic event in Exodus is Exodus 14, what we're going to look at today, the crossing of the Red Sea. In his commentary on the book of Exodus, Phil Riken, he says this, you can read this on the screen. He says, anyone who knows anything about the Bible knows that the children of Israel pass through the sea. This miracle has been acclaimed by composers like George Handel, actors like Charlton Heston, preachers like Martin Luther King Jr., writers like Leon Uris, cartoonists like Charles Schultz, animators like Walt Disney, and even singers like Bob Marley. Send us another brother Moses from across the sea. Come to break down oppression, rule inequality, wipe away transgression, set the captives free. Exodus. Y'all know that song? That's a great song. And who of us haven't seen Charlton Heston saying to Yul Brenner, let my people go. That is a great cinematic moment. I thought Moses looked like Charlton Heston until I was like 12 years old. That's just my image of Moses. This is one of the great moments in human history, the Exodus. And it's not just the Jews that recognize that. We recognize that in our day. And I'll just say that there's lasting impact upon how we view our faith as New Testament Christians in light of the Exodus. I'm going to show you that today before we're done. So let's look at Exodus 14 together, Harvest Decatur. Write this down as number one in your notes. Four things that take place in this story before we get to application. The first thing is that God picks a fight with his enemy. And that's not a rare thing in the Old Testament, by the way. God's doing this a lot. God picks a fight with his enemy. Moses tells us this in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, 
tell the people of Israel to turn back and to encamp in front of Pihahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. Verse three, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts and the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. And they did so. Now, just a little historical context here. Joseph, at the end of the book of Genesis, invited his entire family, because of the famine, his father, his brothers, all of his family, to come and to live in in Egypt. And Israel lived there for several generations. They actually had a separate community in Goshen, around Egypt. And that's where they lived for generation after generation. Well, several generations after Joseph died, the book of Exodus tells us, that the Egyptians actually forgot about Joseph. They forgot about all the good that he brought into their nation, and they started to enslave the people of of Israel in Egypt. In fact, they were enslaved for approximately 400 years. That's a long time. And God used a man named Moses, according to Exodus earlier in this book, an Israelite who was raised by Egyptian royalty, to lead the Israelites out of Egypt back to the promised land. And when I say that God picked a fight here with his enemy, that goes back in the book of Exodus to all of these plagues, to to the way in which God fought against Egypt and fought against the Egyptian empire with plague after plague after plague that devastated the Egyptian empire and embarrassed the proud Pharaoh. God unleashed these plagues to show Egypt and the Israelites who the real God of the universe was. And it wasn't any of the gods of the Egyptians. It was Yahweh. So when God says in verse 4, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, this is something that God has already started in this book. And God is looking now for the climactic coup de grace to finish off Pharaoh and his army. And he wants to sink a memory deep into the collective conscience of the Israelite people so that they will remember for centuries what God did leading his people out of Egypt. And so, here's what happens. By the way, when God, what God does here is fascinating if you study verse two a little bit further. Look at verse two with me for a second. God says to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp. Everybody see that? Turn back in front of Pihahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. You see, the Israelites by this time, they were already way outside of Egypt, and they were headed to Mount Sinai. And for whatever reason, God tells them to go back and encamp in front of the sea. And, and, you know, just so you know, that's, that's... That's an incredibly indefensible position. Why would you do that? I mean, if you have these Egyptians coming towards you, which we'll see in a moment, that's the case, you're gonna be trapped between the Egyptians and the sea if you're camped in front of the sea. And that's exactly what happened. In fact, Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright says, they would be trapped between the devil and the deep blue sea. It's almost like God was setting them up so they had nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, and they had to trust in him in a way that they hadn't trusted him before. Why would God do that? 
Stay tuned, and we'll see what happens. Go ahead and write this down as number two in your notes. Not only does God pick a fight with his enemy, but also he tests the mettle of his followers. He's still doing that, by the way. God tests the mettle of his followers. Look at verse five with me. Here's what's going on in Egypt. When the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, was told that the people, the Israelites, had fled, the mind of Pharaoh... And his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? That's an interesting way to say it. They were slaves. We need to get our slave labor back. So what did they decide to do? Look at verse 4. So he made ready his chariot, and he took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. Now, pause for a moment here. Let me just talk about these, the, the chariot in the ancient world. The chariot was the greatest instrument of warfare in the ancient world at this time, okay? It was the equivalent even more so than like the submarines, the German submarines at the beginning of World War II and, and maybe even the B-29 bomber at the end of World War II. I mean, this was a great military asset. If you had chariots and, you know, 600 of them to boot, you'd be like a squadron of tanks fighting against Indians with bows and arrows. This was a, a massive military advantage that the, that the Egyptians had over the Israelites. And, and let's just be clear about this too. How many, how many chariots did the Israelites have in the wilderness? Correct. Or you might say it this way, 600 less than the Egyptians. They had none. And besides that, they, I mean, they're traveling with women and with children and with animal and animals and possessions. It was like a group of refugees traveling from country to country, now needing to take on a modern military army. This was going to be a slaughter. They were going to be destroyed, and probably Pharaoh wasn't even going to fight them. He was just going to intimidate them back to Egypt, back to bondage of slaves was his plan. Look at verse 8. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh king. Why would he do that? Why is he egging Pharaoh on? And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. Verse nine, the Egyptians pursued them. All Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them encamped at the sea. Remember, they're in front of the sea now. By Piharoth in front of Baal Zephon. These are the same data points, the same geographical coordinates that Moses mentioned earlier in verse 2. So Pharaoh has Moses and the Israelites trapped with their backs to the sea. He's got them right there where he wants them. Dwayne Garrett says this in his commentary about the situation. He said, we need to realize that under normal circumstances, the Israelites would have been no match for the Egyptian chariots. Untrained peasants who only days before had been working as slaves The Hebrews would have scattered like fallen leaves in a storm before a properly executed Egyptian attack. The situation couldn't have been worse for the Israelites. And watch what happens with the Israelites when they see this. Verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, The Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. They feared greatly. And you know what? 
we would too. Don't get all judgmental on the Israelites here, okay? If we were there in their shoes, we would be afraid as well. This army coming towards you and you got women and children and every, everywhere and you're blocked by the sea. They had reason to be afraid and actually in some ways they do the right thing, at least at first. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Who else are they gonna cry out to? But here, verse 11, this is not so good. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Ouch, that hurts. I mean, that's a harsh thing to say to Moses and also to the Lord. By the way, there's a comical irony in this statement. Are there not graves in Egypt that you would do that? If, you know, yeah, there's graves. You know, what is Egypt famous for? What's it still famous for? Pyramids, right? They had pyramids back then. What are pyramids? Massive graves. Aren't there graves in Egypt? Of course there are. Egypt was famous for them. And now Moses has led us out to die in the wilderness. Look at verse 12. It gets worse. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone. Did they say that? Uh -uh. Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. This is revisionist history right here. Because when Moses first showed up with Aaron, he told him, I'm leading you out of Egypt. You know, I'm, I'm here to save you and help you. I mean, they were like, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Let me pack my bags. They were ready to go. Now they're like, no, 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 we didn't want to go. There'll be more of that in the pages to come in Exodus and Numbers, etc. But now here with the Egyptians chasing them, fear gets the best of them. They doubt God and they doubt their leader, Moses. That never happens to us, does it? Fear. We never act like the Israelites, do we, in our day? Allowing fear to get the best of us, doubting God. Watch this. Watch how Moses leads the people. Elders of Harvest Decatur, do like Moses here, okay? Take note of this. Look at verse 13. And Moses said to the people, <laughs> I love Moses most of the time, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. Can I give you a loose modern day translation of this? You know what Moses is telling them? Man up, Israelites. Get tough. Be firm. Be convictional. Trust God right now. Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians 16. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, and be strong. That's what Moses tells them at this point. And then he says, by faith, I think, in light of what God has already told him, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. You don't have to do anything. He's going to do it for you. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Hush, Israelites. Be silent and trust the Lord. I think this is where Moses, you know, I want us to be like Moses. I want to be like Moses, but he's got special revelation here that the Lord's going to rescue him and do this marvelous thing and that he's going to fight for the Israelites. 
And, and by the way, Moses has seen this already. So of the Israelites, they watched, they sat and watched as God defended them in Egypt and fought for them. Did they fight their way out of Egypt? No. God just brought plague after plague after plague on them. And then the, the Egyptians were like, get out of here, would you please? They didn't do anything. God fought for them, and now Moses is saying, God's brought us this far. He's got something up his sleeve that'll get us out of this jam. I know it. Just be calm and fear not. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Go ahead and write this down as number three in your notes. God supplies salvation to his people. God does the saving. You know what? Can I tell you something? God likes doing the saving. He doesn't let you save yourself. God supplies salvation for his people. So I, I guess the question is now, how's, how's this going to happen? Moses has faith. Does he know what God's going to do? I don't think so. Not specifically anyway. How's the Lord going to fight for his people? I mean, they're trapped here between the sea and the Egyptians. They've got women and children. They've got livestock all around them. What's God going to do to save them? I don't think any of them would anticipate what God would do next. I don't think any of them had any idea what God was about to do. And, you know, I just want to challenge you for a moment because I know you've seen Ten Commandments like 20 times. And I know you've seen movies like The Prince of Egypt and you've read these stories to your kids at night in children's Bible. You know what happens next. Can I just challenge you to pretend like you don't know what's happening next? Just put yourself in their shoes the Israelites, stuck here between the devil and the great blue sea. And, and Moses says, the Lord's going to fight for you. All you have to do is be silent. What, what do you think God would do next? How do you, even if you had faith, like, yeah, God's going to save us. How do you think God would save you? I don't know. Maybe this pillar of fire will just unleash fly, fire on the Egyptians. Maybe God will rain down sulfur on the Egyptians like Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, maybe, maybe the angel of death will show up again and just whack the Egyptians. I don't think any of them, even Moses could have anticipated what God does next. It's absolutely original what God does next. Watch what happens. Read it like you've never heard this in your life. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 15, why do you cry out to me? Which, which is kind of funny because Moses didn't cry out to him. You know, Moses was encouraging the people. It was the Israelites that cried out to him. So why does God rebuke Moses? I'll tell you why. Because Moses is a mediator for the people. More on that in a second. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Go forward where? Where are we going, Lord? Lift up your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. What? What in the world? I don't think any of them saw this coming. And, and, you know, Moses is supposed to stretch out his hand over the sea, and the sea's going to divide in two. In fact, the Hebrew word for divide here is the word baka, which means to split or to chop. So there's a sense in which Moses is supposed to karate chop the sea. I don't know about you, but I never saw Charlton Heston do that in the Ten Commandments. 
That's more of a Chuck Norris move than a Charlton Heston move. It's supposed to karate chop the sea and the sea's just gonna, what? Verse 17, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. Verse 18, and the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Notice chariots and horsemen, chariots and horsemen all throughout this passage. Remember, this is the equivalent to tanks and submarines and B-29 bombers in this day. So this is God's way of saying, yeah, the Egyptians, they got some stuff, but they ain't got nothing on me with their chariots. And that's why David writes later, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, verse 19. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So just a little bit of background here. Whenever the Israelites went through the wilderness, God would lead them in this pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. And now this pillar is going to move from in front of them to behind them and create this barrier between the Egyptians and the Israelites. So when the Israelites start going off into the Red Sea on dry land, the, the chariots, the Egyptians won't just chase right after them. Pretty ingenious of the Lord here to do this. Verse 21, so... <laughs> Now Moses does it. <laughs> Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night. There's some combination here of natural and supernatural forces. Don't ask me to explain it. And made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea. That must have been amazing, just to step on that for the first time, walking on dry ground. And the waters being a wall to them on their right hand, a wall. You know, just imagine this wall of water. I'm sure some of the Israelites were like, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. Walking between these, these walls of water. There's a great moment in The Prince of Egypt. I actually like that movie better than The Ten Commandments. There's this great moment where this scene is depicted and the Israelites are crossing. There's this wall of water and the wall is just huge of water. And there's a lightning bolt that flashes behind that wall of water and you see the imprint of these sea creatures in the water, in that wall of water. It's, it's a great cinematic moment. I think that there's like a whale and different kinds of fish there. You know what? We all know, I think from movies, that time travel, even if we could do it, is a really bad idea. <laughs> if we've learned anything from time travel movies, it's if you have a time machine, don't use it. But what if we did? What if we could go back? I would love to see this. And I pray someday that, you know, in eternity God has it on VHS or some other means. <laughs> So we can watch and be reminded of what happened here. Look at verse 23. So the Israelites, conceivably now, the Israelites have crossed the sea. They're on the other side. And the Egyptians, verse 23, pursued and went in after them. Not a good idea. 
into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. There it is again, chariots and horsemen. And in the morning, watch, the Lord in a pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces. Uh-oh. I, I kind of imagine this, this pillar of cloud, wherever it was, kind of lifting up like a drawbridge eventually, and the, the Egyptians just rush in. And now this pillar of cloud is over them. And God is speaking through that pillar and and, and the Lord threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, says verse 24. Verse 25, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said in that moment, you, you think they would have thought of this before they went into this you know, wall of water on both sides. Let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against us. Like I said, you'd think they would have thought of this before they left Egypt after their country had just been decimated by plagues. You'd think they would have thought of this before this like pillar of fire, pillar of cloud was blocking them. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. All the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. By the way, God takes a parting shot here at the God of the Egyptians, the sun God, Ra. Moses says that when the morning appeared, everybody see that in verse 27, when the morning appeared, the sun is rising. Now, is it, now it's time for the Egyptian God, Ra, to show up and rescue the Egyptians. But Ra has no power. Yahweh has the power. Yahweh is the true God. He shows his power over Egypt, over Pharaoh, over the sun, over creation, over the waters, over chariots, over the horses. And not only do the Israelites testify that God fights for Israel, like God said they would, but the Egyptians just before death declare that the Lord fights for Israel as well. And what happens next? What happens to the Israelites on the other side of the Red Sea? Well, in chapter 15, the Israelites, they do something that we do every Sunday. They gather their instruments out and start praising the Lord. They, they say, hallelujah, praise the Lord. The horse and his rider, he is thrown into the sea. But even before doing that, here's what they do. Look at verse 30. This is so important. This is the climax of this story. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. By the way, that's incredibly ironic because the book of Exodus starts by the Egyptians trying to drown the children of Israel in the Nile. Talk about the tables being turned on you. Verse 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. Now they're fearing the right thing, the right person. And they believed. 
and Yahweh. And they also believed in Yahweh's servant, Moses. So write this down as number four in your notes. God picks a fight with his enemy. God tests the metal of his followers. God supplies salvation to his people. And then fourthly, God's people believe in the God of their salvation. God's people believe in the God of their salvation. Okay, let's transition. And let's think about this as New Testament Christians. What do we do with this Old Testament passage? Should we expect God to part the waters for us the next time we walk down to Lake Decatur? Just karate chop that thing and it splits for us? No. That's not going to happen. And you need to know the difference between what's descriptive and what's prescriptive in the Bible. Have I used those terms before? You know, when God tells us, thou shalt not commit adultery, that's prescriptive for us even in this modern day era. But when God tells Moses to split the Red Sea so that the Israelites can walk through it, that's not prescriptive for us, that's descriptive. God's telling us about something that happened historically, and it's historically significant for the Israelites and for us. But, but I want to be clear, even though this is descriptive, that doesn't mean that God doesn't have something to teach us here. He does have something to teach us. How do you know that, Pastor Tony? Because I've read the Bible. And 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this, all scripture is breathed out by God, all scripture, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So let's talk, before we're done, before we take communion, I want to talk about the, the 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 implications of Exodus 14, okay? I'll give you three. Three, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, implications or applications for New Testament Christians. Here they are. Number one, I hope this isn't news to you. Harvest Decatur, salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. Question. Why did the Lord take the Israelites out into the middle of the wilderness, put them in this incredibly vulnerable place between the devil and the deep blue sea, and then just have a threatening army behind them about to annihilate? Why would he do that? Here's the answer. Because God wanted the Israelites to know when he saved them that he and he alone was responsible for saving them. And God didn't just do that for the Israelites. He also did it for the pagan Egyptians so that they would know too that he is the Lord. Look at verse four. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts. And the Egyptians, not the Israelites, verse four. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. You know what we learn in the New Testament as well? We learn that salvation is not about how smart you are. It's not about how clever you are. It's not about how spiritual you are. It's not about how many good things you do. It's not about how ethical you are. It's not about how moral you are. Salvation has nothing to do with you ultimately. It has everything to do with Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. It's about God, the, sal- the Lord of salvation, saving your soul. And, and here's why that's significant. You might say, well, why, that, why is that significant? 
Because you get zero credit for it. You get zero praise. You get zero glory, even for your own salvation. Nobody this morning is repatting themselves on the back. Boy, man, I really, really dodged a bullet. Thank, thank goodness I'm so clever. Salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. And practically speaking, when, when you realize that, when you realize that the only reason you're saved is because of God's grace and God's goodness, you show up on Sunday and you worship your socks off. Like, man, I am so unworthy. And if I lead you to Christ, you know, which I've done in my life and you guys have led other people to Christ, do I get any glory for that? God forbid. Praise the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. Here's the second thing. Salvation is by faith, not works. Sounds like Romans, doesn't it? Several years ago, I went to a Gospel Coalition conference. This is 2011. Pastor Ryan was there with me. Pastor Hang was there with me. And I heard a sermon at that conference that absolutely floored me. In some ways, it changed my life. It's a message given by Tim Keller on this passage, on Exodus 14. And I remember at the time, I was studying the Old Testament at Trinity. I was preaching here at Harvest. And that sermon that he preached absolutely unlocked the deeper meaning of this passage for me. And what Keller even says in that message is that he had a similar experience to me when he was about 23 years old, when he was a young Christian. And he went to listen to this British Bible scholar named Alec Motier at a, at a conference sponsored by R.C. Sproul. And Sproul said to Motier, he said, tell us about the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Mocher responded something like this. You can read this on the screen. He said, think about it. Think of what an Israelite would say on the way to Canaan after passing through the Red Sea. If you asked an Israelite, who are you? He might reply, I was in a foreign land under the sentence of death and in bondage. But I took shelter under the blood of the lamb. And our mediator led us out and we crossed over. Now we're on our way to the promised land, though we're not there yet. But he has given us his law to make us a community. And he has given us a tabernacle because he must, we must live by grace and forgiveness. And he is present in our midst. And he will stay with us until we arrive home. Then Mojir added to that, that's exactly what a Christian says in our day, almost word for word. George mentioned Easter eggs last week. There's an Easter egg in the Old Testament for you right there. Even Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 10. He said, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And there, you know, there is a way I think in terms of application, there's a way that I could preach this to you this morning, and, and I have a little bit already where I might say moralistically, don't be like the Israelites. Don't be complaining. Don't be complaining against your Moses, Pastor Tony. <laughs> be a good little Christian. You know, have faith in God. Trust him through all the hardships of life. And, and there's, there's absolutely truth to those things. But there's a bigger message here beneath the surface that God is teaching us, and it's this. 
The bigger message is that God saves us when we are utterly helpless to save ourselves. We've got to put our faith in God. We've got to lean on the power that he gives. He's the only one that can save us. And and the best illustration of this is in the text. Look at verse 13 and 14. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Salvation is by grace, through faith, not by works. You're not going to do anything to save yourselves. God's going to do that work. And you know, even as I read this right now, look at this with me. Fear not, Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. You know, that sentence right there is awfully close to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The Israelites got saved in Exodus 14 by doing nothing. By doing nothing. You know how you got saved? You didn't do nothing. You put your faith in Christ. That's what you did. That's where salvation is found. Charles Spurgeon writing about this passage, he says the following. He says, I dare say you will think it is a very easy thing to just stand still and do nothing. But it is one of the postures which a Christian soldier learns not without years of teaching. Amen to that. I find, says Spurgeon, that marching and quick marching are much easier to God's warriors than standing still. It is perhaps the first thing we learn in the drill of human armies, but it is one of the most difficult to learn under the captain of our salvation. The apostle seems to hint at this difficulty when he says, stand firm and having done all, stand still. To stand at ease in the midst of tribulation shows a veteran spirit, long experience, and much grace. By the way, look at verse 13 again. This word for salvation, the Hebrew word for that salvation there is Yeshua. Moses says, fear not, stand firm, stand still, and see the Yeshua of the Lord. Talk about an Easter egg, which he will work for you today. It's no coincidence that our Savior's name is Yeshua. Our Savior's name in English is Jesus. And then Moses says this in verse 14, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Shh, just do nothing, says Moses. You want to be saved, Israelites? You want to get out of this jam? Don't pick up a sword. Don't fight for yourself. Don't try to talk yourself out of the situation. Don't go back to, to, to slavery in Egypt. You just sit there. You just stand still. Because salvation is by faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone, we might say in our New Testament era. And then thirdly, here's another takeaway. Salvation has a mediator. Salvation has a mediator. It's fascinating to me at the end of this passage in verse 31. Moses says, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. What? What? Why is Moses there? Why don't they just believe in the Lord? Here's why. Because Moses was their mediator. Because Moses spoke for them before the Lord. And, and, and by the way, that was no picnic for Moses. He didn't want that job. And it's, you know, verse 15. Why does God say to Moses, why do you cry to me? Moses didn't cry to the Lord. 
The Israelites cried out to God. That's clear from verse 10, but Moses was their mediator. And so God rebukes him. And that's not the only time that this happened. Moses later, he interceded for the Israelites. He told God to kill him, not the Israelites. Kill me, not them. I'll put myself up for them. Whew. Talk about leadership. He offered himself as atonement for the Israelites. Now, God didn't take Moses up on that offer, but Moses did say this in the book of Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from among you. It is to, who, to him, it is to him you shall listen. Who's that? Who's Moses prophesying about? Yeshua, Jesus. And Jesus, that true and better Moses, not only offered himself up as atonement, but actually became a sacrifice of atonement for our sin. Last week we learned that Jesus is the true and better Isaac, right? Who not only went through this ceremony as the one and only son where he might have died, but actually went up to Mount Moriah and died for you. Jesus is also the true and better Moses here who suffered as our mediator so that we might cross over from death to life and enter into the promised land. Blogger Whitney Woolard, she says it this way, whereas Moses was sent to deliver the nation of Israel out of physical slavery in Egypt, Jesus was sent to deliver people from all nations out of spiritual slavery to sin in their hearts. Whereas Moses only spoke the words he received from God, Jesus came as the very word of God. Whereas Moses came as the recipient of the law, Jesus came to fulfill the law. Whereas Moses' face shone with the reflection of the heavenly glory he had seen, Jesus is shown like the sun with his own divine glory. You know, he was better than Moses, Jesus. He was God and man, not just man. Whereas Moses mediated temporarily between God and man by the law, Jesus mediates eternally between God and man by the shedding of his own blood. I told you just now that there are three applications from this passage that I want to share with you. Can I just be straight with you? There's only one. There's really only one. And it's hopefully an application that you have put to practice in your life at some point. Here's the application. Put your faith in Christ. He's the one that saves your soul. Believe in him. Salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is by grace, not works. And salvation has a mediator. His name is Jesus. Let's celebrate him with communion. Pray with me. Yes, Lord, we believe that you died on a cross for our sins, that you were raised from the dead. That you sit at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us. We believe, Lord, that there's nothing that we could do to save ourselves, but by your grace, we are saved. And we put our faith in you. Lord, if there's any person in this room right now listening who hasn't done that or who 
Maybe it's trusting in their own works. Trusting in their own moralism, trusting in their own ethics, trusting in their own goodness to save themselves. God, bring them to the end of that, I pray. And Holy Spirit, draw them to true faith, a faith that turns away from self and turns to Christ. Lord, it's with great sorrow, but also at the same time joy that we enter into a time of communion. Sorrow that our sin was so heinous that it required blood payment. And you had to die for us. Lord, that grieves our heart, but we also celebrate with joy knowing that your blood is sufficient to pay for our sin. And you have made a way for us to be saved. And so we take of these elements now. We are mingled with sorrow and joy knowing what you've done for us and knowing the hope that we have of eternity with you. So God, help us to remember now. Help us to remember your work on the cross that saved us from our sin. Bless this time. Bless this time. As we worship and remember you, I pray in the strong name of our mediator, Jesus Christ, amen.